Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Jamf Now, the number one device management solution for all your company's Apple devices. To learn more about how Jamf Now can help you secure your Macs, iPads, or iPhones, head to jamf.com slash mission daily to set up your first three devices for free. That's jamf.com slash mission daily or click on the link in the show notes. On this episode of the Mission Daily, Chad sits down with world traveler and best-selling author Rolf Potts. Rolf shares with us some of the peaks and valleys of travel, the best ways to blaze your own trail, and the value of owning souvenirs. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Rolf, thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to have you here, and let's jump into it. So was there a moment for you where you exited the ordinary world? Was there a call to adventure? Uh, what was that thing or series of things that got you to leave the ordinary world and embark on uh, your travel adventures? When I was a late teenager, my grandmother got Alzheimer's disease. My grandfather had to stay at home and take care of her. They were farmers. Um, it's not like they had big travel ambitions, but just in terms of being able to enjoy their older years, I realized that that wasn't a given because if anybody had earned his retirement, it was my grandfather and my grandmother who worked as partners as farmers for years and years. And so it was fear that I didn't want to be a person who was nearing retirement and not be able to actualize my dreams. And then also at the time, I've since been able to integrate travel into my life. At the time, I was afraid that the work world would shut travel out of my life so completely that I would have to travel the world before I started working in earnest. So my first vagabonding trip was after university and after some landscaping work that I did after university with the idea that this eight-month vagabonding journey around North America was going to scratch my travel itch so I could get on with my workaday life. As it turned out, I didn't have to compromise. I've been able to integrate travel with my work life. And I think a lot of people can, and we can touch on that if you want. I'm a travel writer, so obviously, by definition, work and travel go together. But I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people be able to integrate work with travel in a very interesting way. So that was a very long way of answering your question. But it goes back to that kernel of fear that I would miss out on my dreams if I wasn't mindful about how I lived my life. Does that fear still guide you today when you're thinking about doing something new? Or how do you view fears when they do enter your mind? Is it something you consider? Yeah, I'm just curious how you view that today. I, I'd say there's still a connection because I've, I've always gained this existential sense. And I've really, the travels and life experiences I've had since I was 19 would probably impress my 19-year-old self. I've just done more than I dreamed even when I had those dreams when I was young. In many ways, because the world is more complex and, and convoluted and accessible than I ever would have dreamt that it would have been. But I think still now, more, you know, more than 25 years later, I realize that every moment is precious, that there is no final thing. You check off your list and then you go into a, a point of stasis. And right. so there's an extent to which fear of being complacent continues to drive me to find new places. You mentioned something really interesting. When we're young, it's very hard to imagine the idea that our lives could become much better than we could possibly imagine at the time. Is there any way or practice or strategy that you would recommend for younger people who are struggling to kind of internalize that? Because oftentimes as young people, if you're 
you know, looking at the available career options or what you've been told about the world, it's a pretty narrow definition. Yeah. Are there any strategies or any maybe mental models you might offer to younger people who feel like there's no way it could get better? Yeah, I get, I, you know, in the years, it's been 15 years now since Vagabonding came out, which has sort of put me on the radar of a lot of people, including a lot of young people who have anxiety about this. They have anxiety similar to sure. the kinds of anxieties that I had. And, and because I can relate to them, I, I feel like I can address their questions. And so one answer I give them is a little counterintuitive, and that's basically be patient, that there's no rush, that I, even when I was living in a van in Vagabonding North America, when I was 23, I didn't have a passport yet. And so I think doing it incrementally was useful for me. The lessons I learned in North America helped me expand my realm of ambition as a traveler to the rest of the world incrementally. And I think if I would have rushed into a prescribed program to have ticked Europe off the list like many young people do, or to go on sure. some sort of mission or adventure trip to South America or other prescribed things, then it wouldn't have been as meaningful or as useful as just slowly working my way into travel. So oftentimes there's sort of a, these are two metaphors that have come into the parlance since I wrote the book, but the, the FOMO, the fear of missing out or the bucket list drive a right. lot of travel ambitions and that's great, but they can also compromise an intelligent way of framing your travel career. So that's why I tell young travelers to be patient because I'm no longer a young traveler, but I still find lots of time to travel every year because I've, I've been mindful about leaving time in my life for travel and for other things, including family, that I like to invest time in. Well, another thing is, is not to listen to the naysayers. This is a different kind of fear. There's the, there's the fear that you won't be able to actualize your dream, but there's all these fears that attach themselves to international travel that are oftentimes directed to us by adults, by, by older people who might still be caught up in those fears. Oh, you won't be able to get a job. Other countries are dangerous. You know, people hate America. Truman Show. The Truman, oh, Truman Show, Show. Yeah. Uh, all, all over, yeah. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And, and I forget sometimes until I get other emails from young travelers how, how um, paralyzing those adult expectations can be that you know you have a mom or a dad or an uncle or a teacher or whoever who you love but is telling you in no uncertain terms that you can't do this that this is irresponsible and i tell these young travelers that they just have to gently dissuade this to just say mom i love you but i'm gonna go and i'll send you a postcard and maybe you can meet me someplace in the world and and to just sort of take control of that situation psychically and realize that it's important to be in control of your own fear that don't subscribe to the fears of others, including societal fears, which really, there's a lot of factors in American society that say, oh, you need to buy your happiness, you know, or you need mm -hmm. to, you need to live like this person, or you need to be as beautiful or as wealthy or as successful or as driven and, and as performative in your success as person X, Y, or Z. And so I guess something that's attached to this advice for young travelers is really to get a sense for what you want. I had a friend once who wanted to go to Vegas, sort of have a big baller weekend, rent a limousine, spend a lot of money. And so that's what he did. And when he got there, about two hours into it, he realized how dumb the idea that riding around Las Vegas in a limousine yeah. was as a desire to begin with. And I don't want to make fun of him necessarily, but I just think if in a quiet way, if you understand what makes you happy, what kinds of adventures you have, you have what kind of experiences you desire that are not prescribed by some sort of 
consumerist vision of how we're supposed to live, that really helps guide this. And, and that's how literature, we talked about books earlier, that's how reading travel books, philosophy books, books of poetry. I know in Vagabond, I talk about Walt Whitman as a big influence on me and living right. a reflective life that helps you understand what makes you a happy person in the world. For some people, it might not be travel, but obviously the, the travel dreamers come to me for advice, so I often talk about travel. And so that's another thing, is there's, that, there's the, those, these internal fears that can inspire you to make your travel dreams happen now, like I did for myself, but there's these external dreams that are superimposed by society or by other people, sometimes people close to us, that can also keep us from traveling. So good things to keep in Definitely. mind when you're, when you're planning your travel career when you're young. At many times, it can really feel like the cultural conditioning or pressures, whether real or imagined from those around us, almost conspire to keep us in the same type of habitual routines. And there's this big push, I think now, that everyone should follow a prescriptive path for something, even in fields like entrepreneurship, where, you know, it's kind of proven that the unscripted path often works best, even in science, like most of the best discoveries that were, you know, there's a great book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Many of them were accidents or discovered in drunken stupors or, you know, random travels, things like that. What's your advice or any more strategies that you might offer for those looking to avoid the path that everyone else is taking, kind of blaze their own trail? It might go back to that Bruce Lee advice I put in the very beginning of vagabonding. And I'm not going to quote it correctly, but he basically says, study all systems and take what is useful yeah. and ignore what is not. And so I think what's happened in this, in this information age is that there's a lot of good, just sort of philosophical and spiritual life, life advice that we've packaged for each other. And it could be said that Vagabond, yeah. my book Vagabond is one of them. Then it becomes prescriptive in a way. And so you have to use that, that old Bruce Lee credo to, to really see what parts of these philosophies appeal to you. Because you can't really subscribe to your life's vision. You have to sort of create it out of what you know you love and what you know you don't know yet that you love and want. Travel being an avenue to find out things like that. Yeah. And so it's funny, you know, I, was, I, I listened to a lot of lifestyle advice and design podcasts that are actually trying to help people, but even they can become prescriptive sometimes. If, I guess if you don't have a dynamic relationship with this advice, that oftentimes the people giving the advice, including me, don't mean for it to be prescriptive. We mean right. to, be, to be useful and inspirational and insofar as it makes your life better and the world better for you and the people around you, then be your own creator by utilizing this advice in the best way. I love it. And you mentioned your first trip, you didn't have a passport. That requires a fair amount of courage. Is there a moment or maybe some stories from early on in your life that you feel helped develop that courage? Or was that something that you know, you were terrified about not having a passport. Well, the passport, when I traveled, I could go to Mexico or Canada without a passport. And so it's not even like I didn't, my scope of where I thought I could go in the world was so small that it didn't even encompass a passport until about age gotcha. 20. And so my courage was in my first vagabonding trip, my non-passport vagabonding trip was just pegged to the simple fears, those external fears. Oh, it's going to be dangerous. Oh, it's going to be expensive. Oh, it's going to be difficult and complicated and you won't be able to improvise. And those were all proven wrong. And, and that, that all happened before I got my passport. Now, I will say that when I got my passport, I eventually moved to Korea, taught English for a couple of years 
in a situation that isn't necessarily vagabonding, but it was another level. It would be wrong to say that I learned all my lessons from that first trip, even though I learned a lot. There was something about living and working in another country that really broadened and deepened my understanding vis-a-vis fear and other factors that influence how you do these things. How long did it take you to get comfortable in Korea where you felt like you could relax or start to enjoy things, maybe sleep better? Was that a month, two months? Maybe a month. I remember really feeling a strong sense of anxiety. I moved there in around Thanksgiving in 1996. And there was a combination of sort of that that winter cold and darkness that feeds sort of an inbuilt seasonal affective instinct that I have where I'm just naturally anxious. Yeah. And then, then it was real culture shock is that I'd never really been forced to immerse myself in a foreign culture. And so I remember having some very dark days the first couple of weeks, but just facing it, just getting up at five in the morning or whatever, walking to work, talking to my students, trying and failing. And to my students and colleagues credit, you know, they, they rolled with me even when I was very naive and, and, and a little bit scared of everything. But I learned so much in that first month. I learned very simple lessons by just wrapping my head around food. And to this day, Korean food is my comfort food. I learned Hangul, which is the Korean alphabet within that first month, which didn't make me fluent in Korean, but it allowed me to read sort of the secret phonetic code of where I was. You know, I could sure. see when a sign said, oh, that's too long, that means restaurant, right? And so it was basically by acknowledging my anxiety and the darkness of this new situation, and then just sort of in a way that maybe I didn't mean it to be humble, but in a way where I was open to my own humiliation, I just banged my head up against all of these small challenges until after a couple of months, I had made peace with being in this new place. And it made such a difference. You know, I learned so many important lessons probably in that, that two months of coming to terms with a new country that I still use when I'm on the road today. At that point, were you writing or were using, were you using writing to maybe integrate your experiences or explore what was going on? Was writing a big part of your life then? Very much so. I kept a, a very, I typed a very detailed journal, which I still look at from, from time to time. And I still have those computer files. I, I've never journaled in that way since, but it was good for me. I also kept a notebook full of much more fragmentary thoughts and it really was essential. Now I, I had ambitions to be a writer at the time. I had tried to write a book about my USA travels a couple of years before and, and had failed and learned some important lessons from that failure. So I had writing going at many levels. I was trying to write essays, which in a way didn't really work until I'd been in Korea for a while because I didn't understand what I was seeing yet. But in those journals, which in retrospect can be sort of maudling and, and self-pitying or self, self-glorifying at times, <laughs> they weren't really meant for anybody else, but it was me working my way through this new experience and this time in my life, which felt very transitional and sort of mid-20s crisis-y. And it hurt sometimes, and I was sometimes unhappy in Korea, but I'm, I'm grateful to that country and that experience and time in my life for forcing me to work through these in issues in a way that ultimately became positive. And one more thing I, I wanna to touch on is, you mentioned that you were open to humiliation then. At what point did you realize that being open to humiliation or being willing to not be afraid if you get horribly embarrassed again and maybe you know again and again multiple times at what point did it really hit home for you that that was a maybe a secret to accelerated confidence or accelerated learning i think it's really tied into the korea experience because in a way being overseas gives you permission to wrestle with that kind of humility i think we we hold our ego kind of close when we're at home because status is off often hinges on 
our projected confidence on, on how tall we ride in the saddle, so to speak, through life at home. Korea was a bunch of strangers. I had a bunch of roommates from, from Canada. God bless them. I might have had a couple of American roommates. And then it was a bunch of Koreans, people I hadn't met before. And so I realized it was almost a survival tactic that I had to come to terms with my own humiliation and potential for it, or else I would live a very, very cloistered life in Korea. And I don't know if it's completely transferred over to the United States. I think still I am, I'm less likely to wrestle with my own humiliation stateside because I think it's either I haven't transitioned into that or it's just a much more difficult prospect in an area where you're more beholden to, to permanence in your own language and, and people and stuff. Whereas in Korea- it's pretty, and, pretty taboo like, here. Oh yeah, it's just very, I would say very taboo. And it's, it's something that people here, Americans especially, tend to hold on and remember those things uh, almost as if they keep them in their back pocket. Well, yeah. How many people are still, still feel the pain of adolescent humiliation? You know, it's part of yeah. our- it's part of our building of self. And oftentimes uh, successful people, sometimes unhappy successful people will often hearken to, the, to adolescent humiliations, which is fine. I mean, I mean, that's part of getting to know who you are. If you, if you feel humiliation in a certain way, you can strive to move past it. But if you're still using past long distant humiliations to, to animate the present, then maybe that's the most, not the most healthy relationship to have with it. And I think one gift that travel gives you is realizing that you can embrace your humiliation as sort of a happy-go-lucky way to grow in, in, into a new place and to gather tools to, to be a better traveler or a better person or someone who's, who's better at listening or better at intuiting certain situations or someone who's just open to different interpretations of how a given situation would be. And I think this is something I can explain now, but you actually have to really travel to appreciate the nuanced humiliation that leads to nuanced <laughs> lessons when you're traveling. And at what point in your, your travels and your life did you, would you describe any points as your like lowest moment or was there a dark night of the soul where you looked at all your travels and thought, wow, I, I shouldn't have done those. And you maybe thought about going back home and you know, staying put in America for a while. Was there ever a moment or maybe a period of months like that? Probably the strongest one was that first month or two in Korea where I, I really felt it was, it was a complicated thing where I just, I just really felt so out of place and so, so anxious and uncertain about everything that was, was going to happen next in my life. And that was partly connected to travel, but also just sort of my life stage that I sort of, especially for young men and young people in general, but young men, I think, feel this compulsion to be successful or at least to project success at a young age, which I think is silly. I think it's silly to feel pressure I mean, the lessons that will make you a, a successful 35-year-old are important and often humiliating or humbling ones that you learn when you're a 25-year-old. I, I think you shouldn't subject yourself to pressure to, to be projecting this together successful person when you're 25. Yet I was wrestling with that and I didn't feel like I was living up to this notion I had of myself when in fact I was creating that notion that I had of myself, that I was going through the process that would later pay dividends. So I have had other dark nights of the soul. I've I've wrestled with sickness and, and loneliness and, and being lost and, and frustrated and sometimes even existentially unsure, even in my 30s and now my 40s, about what to do. But they don't really compare to working through that first episode of deep anxiety that I got, that I dealt with in Korea and turned out to be a blessing because I needed to deal with that. I would have had a much less interesting and bold and daring life had I 
limped back home with my tail between my legs and done something less counterintuitive. Well said. And we've covered the valleys now, but was there ever a moment that was kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum? Or maybe it's a moment like, you know, every year where you kind of reflect and realize just how far you've come. You know, you mentioned earlier, the type of life you have now is something you couldn't have previously imagined. What are those moments like for you? Are they rewarding? Is reflection now much more satisfying that you're older looking back on all that travel? That's a good question. I think it's a different kind of satisfaction. I think that satisfaction you have when it's new, almost like when a book when you read for the first time at an age where you're very vulnerable to its message affects you in a way that books don't affect you later in life. I'm, I'm thinking of books, uh, you know, like like Vonnegut or Joseph Heller or Annie Dillard or Walt Whitman that I read at a certain age that affected me in a soulful, emotional way that books, even great books, don't affect me now. It's similar with my early travel experiences. Like there were moments on that first USA trip when I was, you know, sitting in a field in Yellowstone or looking off a cliff in Big Sur or spending quiet time in a monastery in Massachusetts or hiking in Vermont. There's so many that I just felt so grateful. I felt like the luckiest person in the world simply because I was doing more than I had, I was experiencing more than I had expected. And that, that's happened at an international level too, where I've been in places, especially on my first big two-year Asia journey after Korea, where I, I sat and, and just the gratefulness flowed through me. And it doesn't, it's not the same since then. Sometimes I literally, I'll get down on myself, maybe when I'm back home in Kansas or I'm, you know, when I'm in some sort of work situation, be it writing or teaching where I'm not happy in, in, with certain outcomes that I have to remind myself that I have accumulated this series of, of moments and epiphanies and experiences, good and bad, that I wouldn't have anticipated when I was younger. I, I guess it's up and down. Nobody, nobody you know, gets a high. You know, nobody experiences the tangible joy of the present moment and rides it until their grave 60 years later. You know? So I, I think as an adult, I have to remind myself you know, even this morning, I got up at about 6.45. I, there were some things that I had to do that I sort of dreaded doing. And I looked outside and, and the sun was beautiful over the Kansas prairie. And, and it just reminded me that I have come to a place where I'm living in, in a place when I'm not traveling that I really love. And so this is almost a spiritual exercise that these epiphanies, if you're bold enough, these epiphanies are given to you when you're young. And then you have to remind yourself of them. You still earn them, but you also have to remind yourself of, of their joy and their usefulness as you grow older. You can collect those moments as you go and you can reflect on them. And in a way, there's something that is completely unique. You can reflect on them in quiet moments with yourself, with friends, with family. At what point did you start collecting souvenirs as you went to kind of help remember those moments? You know, souvenirs are something we can place around the house and in a great way, a lot like good books, they can help keep us keep us upbeat. They can be kind of a compass. So yeah, when did you start collecting souvenirs? Well, as I say in my book about souvenirs, I think we all instinctively collect souvenirs. Like when we're children, we hold up little objects to adults as proof of the world. I think before we do that, we put them in our mouths. Um, <laughs> if you look at the developmental stages of human beings, we like, Agreed. Which, yep. which I enjoy, we taste the world, right? We use a sense that we don't use as much anymore. We no longer go to the Parthenon and lick it, right? But when we're, <laughs> when we're two years old, we get these little objects that, that blow our minds, these little rocks and leaves and fists of dirt, and we put them in our mouths. And so 
it's sort of a way from a young age that we organize our life. And I talk about in the book about when I was in Chicago, I grew up in Kansas, didn't see the ocean until I was 15. But when I was seven, I found this clamshell on the shores of Lake Michigan, which was a lake so big I couldn't see the other side. And I called it a seashell, which was not accurate because it wasn't the sea. It was a freshwater lake. But in a way, I think a part of me, it was a promise to myself that I would see the ocean one day. And so we have this dynamic relationship with souvenirs our whole life. And sometimes we'll go to great pains to buy a souvenir that ends up being less evocative of a souvenir that we sort of brought home by accident. And so I, I have refrigerator magnets that are fine and that I can sort of strain to remember what I got them for, but I can look at a pair of Oslo hiking boots that I used in hiking the, this, the Libyan desert in Egypt years ago that take me back to a much more meaningful time. So one great thing about souvenirs is that there's not a one-to-one relationship with memory and object that they can surprise us. They can gain or even lose power over time. So it's one of the themes I explored in the book. And even now that they have a way of surprising me, I live very near to my parents. And so along with my nephew, we had photographed a lot of objects so that when my parents pass away, we can know their provenance. We can know what the story is behind them. And so sitting with my parents and they're basically telling me the story of, I think it ended up being almost 400 objects that me and my family members will eventually inherit, told a story of its own, you know, that these stories have different energies and one may have originated in the country of Germany with my great grandmother. And another one may have just been randomly purchased at a market a few years ago. But just that exercise made me realize this isn't even a travel thing, how objects have these really complicated narratives that change over time. And I don't want to get too abstract with that, but yeah, travel souvenirs yeah, are the same yeah, way. They can surprise you back into a, into a memory. I think what's fascinating there is that, you know, you mentioned you're someone that has traveled all over the world, written s- several books, and yet you chose to come home and live in Kansas. What inspired that? We look at the stages of the hero's journey. You could argue that you're on the 17th stage there where you're, you know, integrating and sharing the boon with the rest of the tribe, with the rest of the family. Do you view it that way? Or why'd you choose to go back? It's interesting. I've never thought of it in terms of the hero's journey specifically. You know, it does involve a return. Although even Odysseus returned and then had other business to, to attend to. I think it was less specifically than a hero's journey thing. Although I think it's like psychically it's important, even if you don't return to a home, to, to establish a sense of home. And I've written about this recently. I think it's really a part of the journey and it deepens the journeys to come. I was inspired... Well, one, on a very pra- pragmatic level, it's, it's not that expensive to live in Kansas. My monthly expenditures compared to my friends who live in sexier parts of New York or San Francisco is just, I save so much money by living in an unsexy part of the country. Unsexy, but yet very beautiful to me part of the country. I also learned, and this is a good lesson of travel, you know, we're, we're individualists in the United States and we prize it. And I still to this day prize my individualism, but the rest of the world is a little bit more collective and a little bit more family oriented and they're more likely to, to pool resources and live close together and, and help each other through the quotidian details of their lives. And so when I tell people sometimes that I live close to my family, they're here, oh God, I'd never want to live close to my family. Well, I, I like my family. I was blessed in that I like my parents and I like my sister and, and her family who also lives near, near to me. And so Gosh, I've been I've had this property since 2005, so 13 going on 14 years. And it's just it's just worked out really well. I have a, two different family units who can keep an eye on my place when I'm gone. I've been able to be in my nephew's lives. Uh, my parents have been able to be in their grandkids' lives. 
I mean, it's a very deliberate thing and it wasn't entirely informed by travel, but you see people, you know, Vietnam, Namibia, all over the world, people who, families who pool their resources. And so it's, it's turned out to be a, a really great situation that specific to my own life situation has been fantastic. I'm able to live in this inexpensive but important to me part of the country and have family close by. I shoveled my parents' drive a couple of days ago when it snowed. They monitor the heat in my house. They will when I'm gone. I'm going to be gone for three months this winter. And so it has worked out in, in a wonderful way. And I don't know if all of our listeners will will have this as an option, but it's certainly one that is not often presented to us in this steely-eyed American individualist society, where almost as a mark of success, you have to you know, do your own thing and, and be in your own bubble. But uh, the collective, the, the family life has, been, has worked out really well for me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Same here. I'm very close with my family. And I feel like that's something that is it's it's very hard to build the type of family though that enjoys being together. That's a challenge in and of itself. And I think what you mentioned that was fascinating is you have many different objects, souvenirs, heirlooms in the family, many stories. Do you feel like those are kind of like help hold the family together and that sense of shared history? How do you view that? And do you think that's a big contributing factor in the fact that you are all pretty close? It's interesting. I never thought of it that way until you framed it that way. But it, to an extent, yes. And I think the, the key thing here is narrative. And there's different ways. Like, like as a family, you share a story. When I was 11 and my sister were 13 and we were really into distance running and my parents were into distance running, suddenly we can be back. We can be back in that moment as a group. And it's a story that brings us together based on past experience. Travel is the same way. You know, my parents, my mother had never left the country until she came to visit me in Korea when I was in my 20s. My dad had been to Mexico and Guatemala when he was in his 20s, when he had lived in Los Angeles. But since then, travels with my parents are the source are the source of joy and narrative when we're together. It's like, remember that time in Mongolia when we were caught in that rainstorm and the Mongolian family let us shelter in their gear and we were so happy to be there and they were so happy to have us there. So those experiential stories can, can be a source of connectedness. But then you're right, objects, objects can be the same way. My dad is a big family history aficionado, sometimes the, to the irritation of family people around him. He just has a family history analogy for everything. But having just gone through all of these objects, many of which I didn't know what the story was. Like I've, I've seen this trunk my whole life. At first at my grandparents' house and now my parents, I didn't realize that my 15-year-old great-grandmother made a Bartles left Germany with that trunk with her life possessions. And you think yeah. about travelers and, you know, immigrants are in the news now more than ever. And you think about that journey that this 15 year old girl on, on her paperwork, it said she was a servant. What a crazy moment for a 15 year old to leave Germany and, and to go with distant relatives. And so that becomes a narrative too, is that's a part of my story now just by, and that's a story I didn't know. I didn't know that trunk was a part of it until yesterday. And so it's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to think more about that, that, that we do. Like I can sit in my office and I sort of have a narrative relationship with all these souvenirs that may have started another time of the world. But the objects in this, on this piece of land in, in my parents' house, which is very close to here, can also be a common story between us. So, so it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's that cliche where you go to family reunion and everything else is awkward. So you talk about pets, babies, and sports. <laughs> Yeah. And it doesn't have to be awkward, but there are objects and experiences and pets and babies can be a way to, to navigate the stories that make us closer to our family. So yeah, it's interesting to think about. 
And for anyone out there that's listening, I, I know a lot of our audience might be thinking, you know, I don't have that relationship with my family, but I do want to start a family. Maybe I want to start that type of history or dare I say dynasty now. Any advice on maybe getting started today of building a great story with your spouse or with your children? Yeah, and kind of starting from ground zero. Oh, absolutely. Now, before I get into the, the spouse and children thing, you can create families out of non-blood relations, right? You know, sure. you can have a mindful and loving relationship with people that you've just decided to be close to. Maybe people who share your values, maybe people who you can be collective with and maybe share some duties. They, they travel one season, you keep an eye on their house and you travel another season. So I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that because some people don't just don't get along with their blood relatives for very serious and legitimate ways. So you can use that sense, that metaphorical sense of love and community and togetherness with people of your own choosing, even if you're not creating humans with them in the way of a, of a spouse. Right. Um, but with, with your spouse, I think being, again, being mindful in a non-consumerist way of thinking, well, here's this child and how are we going to construct their life? How are we going to make them prepared for the world? And oftentimes, again, in a consumer society, it's, oh, well, we need to, we need to protect them. I mean, it, my sister and her family and her husband have been very mindful, even though they're not big travelers, about raising their kids in a very deliberate way. So like the kids, I have so many pictures of my nephews, like basically eating mud, right? <laughs> and, and that's something that might make- Get the probiotics. People, yeah, exactly. It, it, urban people would think, oh my God, how this, that's child abuse, but they're the healthiest teenagers now you could ever see. You know, that mm -hmm. basically they, they have an immunity to all the, the things that, that helicopter parented children and helicopter parents mean well, but helicoptering is not mindful parenting, right? Sure, yeah. Um, and so I, I just think- that can be a fun part, and I, and I know so many families who've used travel to make this happen, of being this holistic way of educating their kids and themselves, you know, because who, who, who really knows how to raise a kid? It's another situation right. where you're subject to all sorts of humiliations and, and exha exhaustion and trial and error and, and utter bafflement at the fact that the kids aren't responding to the way you thought that they would. <laughs> But I think if you can even embrace a, a traveler's mindset and that know that the humiliations and the being lost and bewildered and, and completely not speaking the same language as this little human can be part of the process that's good for everyone. I don't have children, so I can't speak to this in an experiential way, but I have seen parents who are, who respect kids, not by letting the kids run wild, but by listening to them, you know, and, 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 and acknowledging their kids' frustration. So many journey metaphors can be attached to parenthood. But yeah, that can be a good way of creating that community if you have not inherited it by, by acknowledging, even just verbally acknowledging that family is important. I, can, I sort of came from an understated family. And so I don't think we started acknowledging our affection and love for each other until we got a little bit older. But that's something that you can, you can create. Again, not a dependency, not a codependent relationship with your kids, but creating this world where you've given them some tools to operate in the world and that they can acknowledge and be grateful for that. And as they get older, they can enhance your life in ways that you hadn't expected. Rolf, thanks so much for joining us. And if you had to leave our listeners with one final call to adventure or really implore them to get out and see the world or maybe just implore them to do their own thing and uh, chart a course that is not prescribed. What would you say? I guess three things popped in my head is that one is know what you really want, underline on the really, 
because there's so many prescribed things of what you think you're supposed to want. Two, decide that it's going to happen. And travel specifically is something that you don't need to force. You can decide you're going to travel the world or even just travel to Colombia or to Egypt or wherever you've dreamt of traveling. And if it happens in three years, then that's fine, which leads into the third part, which is just be patient and go slow. Know that it will happen. And it's all part of this mindful thing, you know, knowing what you want, what you really want, deciding that it's something that you're going to do, and then slowly and deliberately allowing it to happen in your life. So cool. Rolf, thank you again. And for everybody that's listening, where can they find you or connect with you at? Probably the center for everything is rolfpots.com which I've had for 20 years now. I've had my website for 20 years, rolfpots.com. Really? Looks a yeah, lot different well, than it did in 1998. <laughs> but that links to my Instagram, to my Twitter. I have a blog and I have a podcast called Deviate, which tackles topics all over the radar, including travel. And rolfpots.com is a good starting place for all of that. Awesome. Oh, it to my Thanks. books. I need to promote my books, at least my books as well, including awesome. Bag of Money and Souvenir and my travel story collection. Marco Polo didn't go there. Very cool. Check that out. And for everybody listening, we will see you next time. Hey, this is Ian from The Mission. I talk to Fortune 500 CIOs and IT visionaries about how much effort and energy they put into securing their devices. But they have teams of hundreds of IT professionals, an advantage that the average business doesn't have. Until now. Jamf now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your company's Apple devices. As your business grows, so does your digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. This is especially true if you have remote employees, like we do at the Mission. With Jamf now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, or even lock and wipe a device as needed from anywhere. And all of this with no IT experience needed. The Mission Daily listeners can start securing their businesses today by setting up their first three devices for free forever. Add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash mission daily. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash mission daily. We love Jamf and you will too. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.